0: Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts
1: on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19
0: crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Dr. Rish Desai, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Tony Jay, CEO of Crisis Prevention Institute. CPI is an international organization that helps train individuals in how to safely manage disruptive and assaulted behavior. For nearly 40 years, CPI has been a leader in best practices with regard to behavior management, Tony, thanks so much for being with us today.
1: Thank you so much. And thank you for providing me this time to to share some insights with those listeners of this uh, podcast. You guys do amazing work.
0: That's very kind of you. I I want to just start out, you know, given that it's COVID-19 and whatnot, just how are you doing? How's your family doing? We're great. And thank
1: you for asking. I mean, it's not just my family, but also the extended family at CPI. We have 300 individuals that work at CPI and we're spread around the world. And thankfully, we've all been very safe and have really come through this pandemic quite well and quite resilient. And part of it, will be talking, you know, some of the things that we talk about today, some of the, the insights that we've learned and how we've applied it to
0: ourselves, not just what we advise others to do. So maybe a little bit of background then, like what, what got you excited about public health and crisis prevention in general? And, and when you started this, obviously, the field was it was in a much different place. So maybe paint the picture of what things were like at that time and and what motivated you to to pursue it.
1: Yeah. So personally, I don't come naturally to the healthcare and education space, which is where CPI primarily plays. I've always been uncomfortable throughout my life when I would be approached by someone who had some obvious mental illness and is approaching me on the street or, you know, working with my goddaughter, you know, that has Down syndrome. I, I knew that, There's got to be a better way to, you know, manage those circumstances that I found myself in and through years and years of challenging sort of the norms around that and then landing at CPI, it really put everything that the focus came in very clearly in terms of that people communicate through behavior and there are ways that then we controlling our own behavior can communicate with them as well and, and come to a great outcome.
0: So just, just for my own benefit here, can you just define for me what is what is meant by deinstitutionalization or, or what is that phrase meant to encompass? I'm not familiar with that term.
1: Yeah, so deinstitutionalization just simply means that back in the days, you know, let's say in the early 20th century up into the 60s and early 70s, a lot of people that live with mental illness were in some type of national or county type facility. And they were really not out in the streets, not out in public, and their care was delivered there and they actually lived in these facilities. And then deinstitutionalization just means that they were deinstitutionalized and they were put back into the community. And a lot of times communities did very well and supported them. But more often than not, I'd say that has not worked out well for these individuals. And that's something that societally that that we, I think, have struggled with over at least the 40 years that CPI has been in business.
0: What were the political reasons why that happened then? And, and what, what would you say motivated people to, to say that it has worked or hasn't worked in different settings?
1: Yeah, there's, there's a lot of differing thoughts around the genesis of, of why this was done. A lot of it could have been funding relevant. A lot of it had to do with better drugs coming on the market whereby some of these conditions can be managed. And others were, which to some degree I, I agree with, subsidiarity, where we will take care of our own. I mean, it, it's a it's an issue that the local people can do better than maybe some national type public health decree. So that was, I think, sort of the genesis. And it's just one of those things where I think it quickly spiraled out of control and and, and we still haven't really spent enough time really working on that aspect. You know, it's interesting that we do some law enforcement work at CPI as well. So a lot of you know, sworn officers are dealing with these individuals out there, but also healthcare facilities. I think a lot of our joint listeners now do experience you know, high rates of these people coming into their emergency rooms or some other aspects of their facilities and having to deal with that. So we're, we're now almost the tip of the sword you know, to, to deal with this thing. And, and that's something that
0: you know, CPI has been driven to change over the past 40 years. So that's that's a good segue then. It's like what is CPI's mission and and like obviously there are so many different players in this space and and it's such a politically charged set of questions that get asked. So trying to remove some of that inflammation and getting at like what's actually happening on the ground like how does CPI approach it and and what is the unique thing that that CPI brings to the table?
1: Yes. So our founders were really driven by the mission where we need to have a restraint-free world. And by restraint-free, it just doesn't mean mechanical restraints or psychotropic, you know, drug restraint. It's physical restraint as well. We want a restraint-free world. That being said, and that's our goal, how do we get there? And so 40 years ago, we developed these suite of strategies and techniques and interventions that are nonviolent and have no pain compliance, but it does still get you to the outcome that you have in these, what we call life's daily crisis moments. So what CPI does is we do two things, and we do two things very well. One is we train professionals how to handle and manage life's daily crisis moments. So for us, a professional may be a nurse or a special ed teacher. In the healthcare setting, again, it gets a schizophrenic, comes into the emergency room, starts becoming, you know, boisterous and screaming at other people, how to de-escalate that situation so that they don't harm themselves, harm staff, nor harm others in that room. Same thing with a nonverbal autistic starting to self-harm themselves in the corner of the classroom, how to, you know, intervene. And through our strategies, and it's been proven, through our strategies, you know, we not only reduce their frequency of these life's daily crisis moments occurring, but we also reduce the severity when they do manifest. So that's one thing that we've done, and we've done very well for 40 years. The other side of our business, which we don't have to get into too much today, is we have a dementia care specialist organization that trains therapists and care partners how to work with those living with dementia in a person-centered way to keep them at their best abilities as long as possible. That's the other side of our business is really that person-centered, you know, they have abilities and really focus on the abilities of these very special people and make sure that as they live with dementia, that they stay at their best abilities as long as possible. So those are the, the two things that we do. That's really the mission that drives us. Our guiding principles that really animate why we come to work, the 300 of us every day, is care, welfare, safety, and security. So you know, those are the four sort of guiding principles that we have that infuse all of the training and even the customer support that we provide.
0: It's interesting. Bo- both sides of your business affect healthcare so deeply, right? Like even the part that you just mentioned, I'm uh, thinking of personal care assistants, home health aides, nursing assistants are working with oftentimes an elderly population, many of whom may have some element of dementia. So that resonates deeply. I guess I'm also curious related to this issue of like mental health is also substance abuse. And I think attitudes have shifted quite dramatically in 40 years on substance abuse. You know, we, we went from a, I don't know what you'd call it, maybe a moralistic model or framework to, I think, increasingly a medical framework where at one point it was sort of like, you got to do this by yourself and you know, it's a moral failure. And now there are medications that we routinely would say are are kind of the, the best, best in care, best standards of treatment things like Suboxone and methadone and things like that. I'm just curious, like, do you feel like a similar shift has happened in mental health? Do you feel like there is a sort of different way that folks view people that have disruptive behaviors or, or do you feel like that's actually not shifted quite in the same way? I'm just, I'm just curious.
1: That's a really interesting question. I mean, I, I haven't thought about it in that context. My initial was going to be yes. <laughs> that, and there is. There is absolutely a shift and acceptance less stigma that type of thing especially you know given this last year that we've gone through and i think we'll get into that maybe hopefully later on in this this discussion but every you know four weeks every month i have a new hire lunch and i take my new staff through there's still a lot of ignorance in this world and that's really what we're fighting and i I don't mean ignorance from a moral failing standpoint or anything that it's just lack of knowledge around the precipitating factors that people bring at any given time and even the level. At the end of the day, we all have our backpacks that we carry. And one of our core values at CPI is really around intrinsic dignity, that every human has intrinsic dignity and deserves the best care possible. That's really one of our core values. And when you really take that on and view people through that lens, that changes because how you respond really impacts truly materially What's going to happen next? And so when you have sort of that empathic sort of way of looking at these interactions, things do change. And so that's what we're trying to illuminate for people worldwide. And I mean, we have been doubling every five years. So, I mean, and our, our other responsible, you know, competitors have as well, but there is still so much work to be done. And as a global organization, you know, we see it not just here in the U S or Canada, but around the world where we're, where we're deploying our training.
0: So that's, that's a good segue. So I guess in the, next, in the last 12 months, and I was asking about the four decade kind of shift. What has shifted in the last 12 months in terms of maybe how you've worked, where you've worked, what techniques you've enabled been, been able to deploy? A lot of things are moving online. What component of CPI is now able to be deployed online? I just love to hear any and all of that.
1: Yeah, so specific to uh, healthcare, I mean, We are not seen as the most technologically capable group of people ever, right? I mean, the fact that we have electronic records and things like that. At the end of the day, our business, you know, the healthcare industry is really about personal interactions, people interacting with people and delivering care. That's really what it is at the end. Technology absolutely needs to be an enabler. So one of the great benefits of the past year is... We have had to challenge ourselves to make sure that our content and our skills, either initial training or refresher training can be delivered virtually and fully online. So we've done that as much as we can do. We've done that as well as the receptivity of our nurses and, you know, the security guards, everybody else who may be working at home or be working shift. They are much more adept at consuming our training through that delivery vehicle. So that's that's one area. However, the other big shift that we've been seeing is that what we hear from our customers is that people when they come into these facilities are more anxious than ever. They are more prone because of these precipitating factors. I mean, the fact that they've actually decided to go into a healthcare setting means that they've absorbed a lot of stress and risk tolerance that they've had to get their mind right with and a lot of people are out of work. There's a lot of things happening that So these backpacks that people are bringing into our facilities now are bigger than they've ever been before. So it's really been our challenge at CPI to make sure that we're running into the fire with you. And we have been. We've been sending our trainers in person out there, even in Seattle, you know, when it was the epicenter of the crisis, you know, in late March, early April, we were there with our customers over there helping them train because they knew that these patients or these volumes were going to be hitting their doors. So, I mean, it's it's always those that, you know, what have we learned from what we've gone through? And then there's also silver linings and everything that we do. But when we sort of take a step back and open up and look at really what we've done as an industry, it's just been outstanding. I mean, people do know that we are now heroes, that that the people that are out there delivering this care and putting themselves at risk, it's become very clear and apparent. And so it's, it's a beautiful thing to have, but we also have to recognize that Our frontline workers and all of our care staff have been under a lot of stress dealing with people that have a lot of stress. And we have to figure out how to create even better resilience for them
0: going forward. I'm just trying to think of like a scenario where let's say that, you know, you were given a bit of a magic wand where you could, within reason, you know, make a single important change for how folks think about these issues, you know, around disruptive behavior or assaultive behavior. And I guess this is tied to kind of education as well we're an education company like what would be one thing that you would be able to if you could just kind of wave that wand and, and just have all of us learn something, what would that be that you would just try to get everyone to understand that you understand quite well because you're in this this business? yeah, I mean there are two things i mean so, so one, I think I talked over earlier,
1: anybody's behavior is really a form of communication, and you need to interpret it as such. don't personalize it don't you know and they're bringing things that we will never know about to this interaction. So just have that just knowledge as you work through whatever is going on. Secondly, I think everybody has to understand that everybody in our facilities has a role to play. And that's really been CPI's focus over the past couple of years. We did the largest private study of workplace violence in healthcare settings ever three years ago. And, I mean, what we found is we've all known, right? Anybody in a healthcare setting is three times more likely to have some violent episode than all other industries combined. Oh wow! So look at oil and gas and distribution, whatever. Combine all those industries together, you're still three times more likely to have some type of violent episode in a healthcare setting. And so that has been our focus over the past couple of years is really how do we address that? And the one takeaway there is, Everybody in that facility has a risk profile that they have to be aware of and know what role they're gonna play. So just hitting the button and having security come is not usually, usually not the right answer. So everybody has a role and understanding that role is incredibly important. So we have four sort of segments of training that we deploy in best practice facilities. And these facilities see drastic reductions and again, the frequency and the severity. Our top 500 customers have been with CPI for over 20 years. Oh, wow. So, the outcomes that they achieve using our strategies are just outstanding. And so, and we're not gonna, I mean, we take that seriously and we improve every year, but it shows that in these large, large systems, even the smaller systems around the world, that the strategies work, the knowledge is there, and there really honestly is no reason why you should be going home at night either bruised or spit upon or hair pulled or verbally abused. There are ways to actually address that and significantly reduce those.
0: You know, just as you're speaking, I'm thinking about all the the massive implications of things like behavior change and disruptive behavior. And, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on whether you think that this sort of training would be relevant or important, even at an earlier stage, like in high schools, like could, could this be a curriculum that that could or should be rolled out so that that we just all citizens kind of have to understand how to deal with these kinds of things, not just, not just people in certain fields, because I'm thinking about civil unrest that we've seen in this past 12 months as well. And the fact that there's kind of amped up levels of depression and anxiety and, and almost everyone, you know, probably at some point is going to be faced with these challenges. So I'm just curious to get your thoughts on that. And if any movement has been made in any formal way to, to get the department of education to include and require some sort of way of diffusing these situations into into that curriculum?
1: Yeah, so a couple things there. One is when you look at sort of the public policy response to this, there is federal legislation, absolutely, very similar to what was done with CMS and this with, you know, psychiatric wards and things like that in the past. Similar legislation for the Department of Ed and Congress at the federal level But really, at the end of the day, it's the states that have really adopted this. And so a lot of the state's Department of Ed do have rules and regulations around this. If any teacher is going to place hands on a student, you need to have this type of training. But it's certainly as usual. It's not expansive enough. It's not audited, things like that. So there's a lot of work yet to be done there. But absolutely. And and then when you brought in this life skill, it's essentially it's a life skill really at the end of the day. And everybody should have this, be it parents, grandparents, you know, and then when you talk about high school and college, even nurses, you know, during nursing school. I mean, one of the things, it's personal for me. I mean, my daughter, one of my daughters is at Ave Maria University becoming a nurse down in Naples, Florida. She's in her third year, loves it. And I'm so excited for her. It's just a wonderful, and she's perfect for it. But, a concern of mine, obviously, is this workplace violence and, and how it's manifesting and things. And what I see when I look at her and I look at her friends, I mean, they're so eager. They're so, you know, there's an altruistic being a reason why they're choosing this career. And what's incumbent upon, you know, CPI and others like us is to make sure that we give them the life skills to manage those other things. Yeah, you can learn how to draw blood, do all these other things. What's as important is managing that environment, just like a special ed teacher wanting to work with kids with Down syndrome and autism and things like that. Managing that classroom is so important for them to now enable themselves to do what they really wanna do. And they don't learn this in school. And so it is it is a focus of ours to what I, I call it the final mile issue, right? It's like trying to get fiber optic to every house in the land. We're trying to get this knowledge, some basis of this knowledge to these kids in schools and also to these families that have their children well looked after in CPI schools, but then at home, you know, they don't know how to manage these crisis moments and sometimes exacerbate what's going on. So it's a real real challenge for us, and it is something that we are actively working on and with.
0: It also strikes me as the kind of education that's uniquely well-suited for an in-person experience because you mentioned your, your daughter is in nursing school. So I'm thinking through that lens, like, you know, you might have, let's say a didactic lesson on pneumonia or on diabetes that can be pretty well delivered online. There are a lot of examples of that, but what you're describing is so rich with interpersonal communication and nonverbal communication, like behavior, noticing changes, noticing kind of facial expressions and using your body and what message you conveying and, you know, de-escalation, all that stuff is so well-suited for the classroom. I'm just curious, and, and I guess maybe this is preaching to the choir a little bit, but like, if you've seen any examples where, where schools are, are using class time to focus more on things like this and then actually then pushing out kind of more didactic bits online where it can be done pretty easily instead. Yes. No, there's just a handful of schools
1: that are doing that, and, and we do work with them. When we, you look at CPI, there's I said there's 320 of us worldwide, but we're a highly scaled business whereby we train trainers. So we'll train a nurse at a hospital, and then he or she will go back and train on average 40 of their coworkers. So those trainers, we call them certified instructors. They have to live up to our standards every year to stay active and do our training on behalf of us. There are 35,000 of those active certified instructors around the world, and they touch now 1.2 million professionals. So there's 1.2 million people absorbing our training every year, and there's these 35,000 active certified instructors. The community that we're able to build at CPI, and it's a worldwide community of practice that the certified instructors now behind our firewall can communicate with each other is amazing. And it's huge. I mean, it's taking off. They're highly engaged. We've had this community going for six years now. And it's interesting in the sense that they can't necessarily go home at night and talk to their spouses about what went on or some of these things. But this community of practice, they do get together and they do share. And it's so fulfilling, whereby it is really an additive aspect of joining the CPI family and doing that. So these these life skills and, and how they're using them does extend well beyond
0: you know, the, the facility walls. So that might be a good segue then for, for my final question, which is about advice. You know, If you're speaking now directly to a young trainee who's starting the, into the health profession, what can that person do to become more aware of how to utilize these skills themselves like in their everyday practice? Let's say they're not part of a CPI program at the moment what would you suggest or recommend to that person? I tell my, my new staff again, every time they come
1: in at our new hire lunch, it's, it's important that you're a continuous learner or you have curiosity. Nothing is ever one and done. And you sort of have to challenge the norms. I, I've challenged these norms around, you know, disruptive behavior happening on, you know, sidewalks my entire life. And they have to bring the same mindset we just don't have to accept the way things are right now, even with COVID or all this other stuff. When you recognize, there's really three things. When you recognize that behavior is a form of communication, that every individual has this intrinsic dignity, that there's an integrated sort of response that you can take as a team in that facility, that's golden. That's like the, the perfect triangle. Because what that does then is that allows you now to fulfill your career desires of being this altruistic, giving back to the world, making an impact in society in the best way that you can. So just seek these opportunities outside of what you just may normally think you need to know. And these life skills, I mean, it could be emotional quotient. It's a lot of SEL. It's all these things that are out there. That makes you such a better person, first off. But secondly, it makes you a better professional and much more able to deliver the care that, that you really want to do over the, the course of your career. So I just, I want to say thank you again for for the time. And to all those listening to this, thank you so much for allowing me to, to share some of the journey that CPI has been on. And we've been around for 40 years. We're building this thing for to be here 40 years from now. So we'll be with you every step of the way.
0: That's a wonderful note to end on. And and honestly, I feel like the next four decades are probably going to have more and more and more need for these types of skills than even the last four decades have have seen. So thank you so much for joining the show today. That was fantastic. Thank you so much. Well, I'm Dr. Ishi Desai. Thank you for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together.